Facts on Movies. Better off dead than wasting my hours Flying where I shouldn't be Flexing like pricks with the stolen power They're dressed to the spider will eat KTRS. Thank you for tuning in to Max on Movies. I am your host, Max Foise. You can find the show at KTRS.com slash Max on Movies. And we are here today to review a film called Madame Webb. Yes, the wait is over. Here's a review of Madame Webb. If you don't know what Madame Webb is, don't worry. Nobody else does either. You know, I grew up reading Spider-Man comics and I was always annoyed when some of the more supernatural characters would pop up because I liked Peter Parker just being a young kid who couldn't make his rent and was unlucky in love and, you know, had a lot of pain and suffering in his life. And then he put on this mask and was out there making jokes like everything was great. That really resonated with me. Uh, But whenever Dr. Strange would show up, I'd be like, oh, no, I don't care about this cosmic stuff. And I felt the same way about Madam Web. In the books, Madam Web is an elderly woman who is blind and has some sort of second sight about the the spider verse and uh, and the roles of everyone in it. It's a weird character, never really resonated with me, didn't really care. However, later on in the books, there was a character named Ezekiel who was an old man with white hair who was kind of stockily built and he could walk on walls and he told Peter, hey, you you know, it wasn't an accident that you got bitten. You're part of a totem and there's lots of spider verses and you are a Spider-Man. And this was kind of it's uh, it was an interesting thing. It was really controversial at the time. But of course, that led into what I think now has been accepted as far as Spider-Verse and different universes of, of Spider-Men, uh, as we've seen in the MCU. That brings me to Madam Web because Madam Web is not in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I mean, it kind of technically is, but this is in the Sony Pictures Universe because Sony owns the rights to make Spider-Man films. As a matter of fact, Marvel can't even use the character without asking Sony pretty please. Now, Sony has done a good job with the Spider-Verse films, the animated Spider-Verse films, Into the Spider-Verse and Across the Spider-Verse, and they've done some not-so-good work with the Venom movies, and uh, boy, they had, they, you know, they, they really had all kinds of grandiose ideas about, we're going to do a El Morto movie, and we're going to, you know, they did a Morbius movie, and uh, I don't know if the people who were signing on to these movies, you know, the screenwriters, the actors, if they think this is a part of the larger MCU, because I think that's how they get these people. They say, hey, do you want to be in a Marvel movie? And they go, yeah, I want to be in something like Endgame. I want to be in something like Captain America, but yet they're in this other universe. Now, after Spider-Man No Way Home, there's been a lot of bleed over. You know, you've had Tom Hardy doing sort of a standalone cameo. You had in the Morbius movie, very strangely, Michael Keaton showing up as the Vulture. So they're trying to make this part of the MCU. Dakota Johnson, who is Madam Web here. Yes, she's not elderly, but I guess we all have to start somewhere. Uh, She was saying on SNL when she was hosting hey, this is a Marvel movie. And again, sure, it is. It's just not in the larger universe proper. I have a new movie coming out. It's called Madam Web. It is in the Marvel universe, and it also stars Sydney Sweeney. So it's kind of like if AI generated your boyfriend's perfect movie. <laughs> now, if all of this is making your head hurt, 
that's because you probably don't care. You just want an entertaining movie. If you don't have superhero fatigue, well, then you're probably going to go see Madam Web because you like superheroes and because you like this cast. In addition to Dakota Johnson, you also have Sydney Sweeney, whose movie Anyone But You has done gangbusters at the box office. Now, when the first trailer for Madam Web was released, it was roasted on the internet and became a meme because of Dakota Johnson's, shall we say, laconic style of narration. Others might call it boredom. Kind of reminded me, actually, of uh, Harrison Ford's narration in the original cut of Blade Runner. Here's the part of the trailer that became a meme. I've seen that man before. So who is he? Ezekiel Sims. He was in the Amazon with my mom when she was researching spiders right before she died. Ezekiel Sims is also not elderly in this movie. He's a younger man, and they give him a Spider-Man suit-ish. It sort of looks like a dark Spider-Man suit. So this is maybe not very close to the comics version of Madame Web or Ezekiel, and that's fine. These are not beloved characters. I think you can do whatever you want with them. Before I even saw the movie, just watching the trailers, I did think, wow, these suits look really comic book accurate especially some of the Spider-Woman suits. Uh, the one that uh, Sydney Sweeney is wearing looks just like it's from the books, which I really appreciated. Although some of the promos for the movie have been kind of odd. Here's another one that went viral. This is uh, Dakota Johnson. So while my character in the movie may be able to see the future, I also can. And I know what the future brings. I know that when you see Madam Web, you're going to love it. In fact, I think you're going to see it twice. In Madam Web, we meet Dakota Johnson as Cassie Webb, Cassandra Webb, who is a paramedic working with Ben Parker. Yes, he will become Uncle Ben in some Spider-Man universe. And uh, she has a near-death experience, and it awakens some sort of second sight where she can briefly see the future. This kind of reminded me of the Denzel Washington movie Deja Vu, which I did not like. I actually like Madam Web better. She gets these visions that these three teenage girls are going to be murdered by this random guy. So when she sees them on the subway, she tries to get them to safety. This random guy is Ezekiel Sims. He has spidey powers. We're not really sure how he got them. I guess the venomous bite of the strange spider that Cassie Webb's mom was researching in the Amazon. That famous line from the trailer, by the way, is not in the movie. Ezekiel Sims wants to kill these girls because he had a vision that these girls have superpowers and they kill him. So he's trying to get them before they get him. And Cassie Webb becomes sort of the steward for these young girls because she wants to protect them. They don't have any powers, though. We do see them in spider suits and we see them with powers, but those are just glimpses of a possible future. Dakota Johnson said on this press tour, boy, it's been so much fun. To watch her on this press tour. Uh, she said that she wanted to do the film because it was grounded in reality. This film and this story is different because it's really grounded in reality. I think I'm seeing the future. Through her clairvoyance, she understands that she needs to save these three girls. Emma Roberts also shows up as the very pregnant Mary Parker. Uh, Richard and Mary are Spider-Man's parents, uh, Peter Parker's parents. And so you kind of have some Spidey connections here, although I don't think they ever say the name Peter in the movie. Because this is the Sony Marvel Universe, people are saying this is a prequel to the Andrew Garfield movies. I'm not sure that that's the case. This seems more to be maybe in the Venom or Morbius universes, although there are no cameos or references to either of those characters. 
I have good news and bad news to report about Madame Webb. It's gloriously bad. So I say good news and bad news because if you were expecting something uh, that was a good superhero movie, then this is not for you. But if you want a good time, if you want something entertaining, then perhaps Madame Webb is for you. This is a gloriously bad movie. There are so many WTF moments, so many line readings and dialogue that just doesn't make a lot of sense and very stilted interactions. Uh, boy, I loved it. I had a ball with this movie, not because it's good, but because I was laughing and smirking at how odd the whole thing was. Dakota Johnson as Cassandra Webb, Cassie Webb, she steals a bunch of cars. She steals an ambulance. She steals a taxi cab. Uh, I didn't expect that. Also, when she's trying to rescue these three girls that she thinks are in danger, she drives them out to the forest and leaves them there and says, I'll be back in three hours. I have to go research something. That struck me as funny. Why are you leaving them in the forest? Can't they come with you? She goes to her house to look through an old uh, box of stuff, an old suitcase full of uh, uh, materials. The girls could have come with her. Why are they just alone in the forest? And why three hours? It was very specific. There's also some great dialogue where the villain uh, is with his his hacker uh, person that he's hired. He's trying to find these young ladies. And, uh, boy, it, it, the scene reminded me of the scene in The Room with Tommy Wiseau where he goes into the flower shop. And if you've seen that movie and the person's like, you're my best customer, Johnny. It's this uh, additional dialogue that was recorded that just seems so out of place. And in this one, he's talking to his uh, subordinate. And he says, I'm paying you a fortune. And then it jump cuts to something else. It's just wonderful. And I think Madam Webb is a bad movie that is still very entertaining. As a film critic, I go see a whole lot of movies that are just bad and boring, and I can't wait to get out of there. That was not the case with Madam Web. I would watch it again right now because it's so ridiculously poorly put together, and I had a ball with it. Get off, get off, get up. Me? Go, get off. You're gonna die if you stay here. Get up. Huh? Are you friendly? Get up. Hey, give me that back. Starring Dakota Johnson and Sydney Sweeney, the movie is Madam Web. The show is Max on Movies. You can find more at KTRS.com slash Max on Movies. Big 550 KTRS, thanks for tuning in to Max on Movies. I am your host, Max Foisy, bumping in with some Dua Lipa because she is in the new film called Argyle, which we are here to review. Now, she's not in it very much, kind of just the opening scene, but uh, this movie has an ensemble cast including Samuel L. Jackson, John Cena, Ariana DeBose, Dua Lipa, who are playing there, Sophia Botella, Henry Cavill, Catherine O'Hara, Brian Cranston, Sam Rockwell, and it's headlined by Bryce Dallas Howard. This is written by Jamie Fuchs and directed by Matthew Vaughn. Matthew Vaughn has 
I produced and directed some really popular films, including some X-Men movies, the Kingsman movies, of which this might be loosely connected. And this one is a spy action comedy film. It's important to note, I don't really call this a parody. I don't call it a spoof, but it certainly is not a serious film. It is not a, a spy movie that's taking itself seriously at all. This movie wants to have fun, big, colorful fun, and I think it does for most of its runtime. We'll get to that in a second because I think that's the weakest link of, of the movie is the fact that it's 130 minutes. Wait, wait, 139 minutes. Yes, pretty much 140 minutes. That's very, very long. This has a gigantic budget, more than $200 million, bankrolled by Apple. Apple's decided to put this in theaters, not just on their streaming platform, Apple TV+, and I'm happy about that. More of the streaming services should go theatrical before putting it on their platform. I guess Netflix is against that. That is too bad. I don't like that model. Uh, the box office for this, though, has not been very good, hovering at about $40 million right now. I guess it's not going to make its budget back, but don't cry for Apple. I think they'll be just fine. Now, I said that Dua Lipa's not in it very much, but the opening scene features John Cena, Henry Cavill, and Dua Lipa. Who told you that we were coming? Who? You don't answer. You're going to be the same temperature as my coffee right now, which, thanks to you, is ice cold. Fine. You and I, we're not so different. You're a terrorist. Then what, Agent Argyle? Does that make you? That's actually just a scene from the book that Bryce Dallas Howard is writing. She is a mystery spy caper writer, and this Agent Argyle series has proven very popular for her. But it also raises the attention of actual spy agents who say, wow, you're predicting what's actually happening with our organizations. How is that possible? We want to know what happens next. And so they kidnap her. They send Sam Rockwell in. Uh, He's kind of the real Argyle, although that's been the tagline of the movie is who is the real Asian Argyle? It might not be who you think it is. And it's not the cat, by the way. There is a cat named Alfie in the movie, played by the cat actor Chip. I thought the whole time, well, the the cat is the real Agent Argyle, but no, sadly, that's not the case. That sounds like a convoluted premise, but guess what? The movie only gets more convoluted because that premise isn't really what's going on. There's crosses, double crosses, triple crosses, and by the end of the very long runtime, maybe even a quadruple cross. Now, this is all well and good and just kind of fun to watch for quite some time, but the movie just drags on and on and does not end. This is a movie where I was excited to see Samuel L. Jackson, who doesn't do much besides watch a Lakers game. John Cena is in it as little as Dua Lipa is. Ariana DeBose, who is so talented, has nothing to do. I love Sofia Botella in everything I've seen her in, and same. It's a walk-on role. Henry Cavill is also barely in the movie, although they do some really cool stunt scenes between him and Sam Rockwell. Really nice perspective shift that's really cool. Brian Cranston's in it a bit more than I would have expected. One of the standouts is Catherine O'Hara. I, I didn't realize she'd have so much to her role, and she's really good. Sam Rockwell loves to dance in movies. The same is true here in Argyle. He dances a lot in Argyle. Bryce Dallas Howard has done some really interesting work in her career, mostly in independent films, smaller studio films. And then she got the Jurassic World franchise, and those made a ton of money. 
And now she's doing another big action movie. It's great to see Bryce Dallas Howard anchoring this action movie. They do something in the movie where at the end she's wearing a, a wig and wearing these nice dresses. I kind of prefer just the writer, Bryce Dallas Howard character in this. Let's start with some negatives on Argyle. The script is too unwieldy. Would have been nice to uh, reduce some of those double crosses and kind of truncate the ending a bit. And the music by Lauren Balf. Lauren has been a guest here on Max and a Movie. He's a very nice guy, but the music is, is pretty uh, unremarkable. I'm not going to give the film a bad review, though, because I did enjoy it while I was watching it. I think I would actually watch it again. I like how this is definitely a, a Matthew Vaughn film. You can see his sensibilities in almost every scene. There's a scene with uh, with guns and, and paint explosions, and it's it's really over the top and goofy and, and kind of fun. But there's also a scene where a character sticks knives on their boots and ice skates on oil. I don't know if that would even be possible, and uh, I, I could have done without that. Here's my take on Argyle. I compare it to when a friend of yours invites you over for dinner, and they're telling you a humorous story. And the story is humorous, and you're enjoying listening to it. But the story keeps going, and keeps going, and keeps going, and your food is getting cold. That's kind of how Argyle is. The entire last act could have been truncated a lot shorter. Uh, you you could you could have really saved this movie with a shorter running time because it's enjoyable and the characters are fun. But oh my lord, you just uh, please make it stop. I want to go home. I want to do some other stuff. I never really look at runtimes before I go see movie screenings because I think it was Roger Ebert who said a great movie is never long enough and a bad movie is never short enough. And that, that's kind of true. A lot of movies that are bloated and have running times that they don't justify, some of those movies, the the opening is too long and you could have taken stuff out. Other movies have a middle with a lot of fat. This one is completely the ending. I think it has kind of a natural ending and then it just keeps going. So while I'm not going to give very high marks to Argyle because I do think it's overlong, I did enjoy the film and I know it's getting... Uh, crucified right now by a lot of critics who are just saying, oh, it's so awful. I like Matthew Vaughn stuff, and I like this one too. I think the characters are fun. It's a funny movie. Now, if you're going for an action film, the action is more in a comedic ballet kind of thing than an actual like John Wick kind of action. This is definitely more of a comedy film. I mentioned that they may have uh, a connection to the Kingsman films. I... <laughs> Here I am praising Matthew Vaughn. I'm actually not a big fan of the Kingsman movies. But yes, this does uh, sort of connect to those films as well. Henry Cavill was asked, are they going to have sequels? And he said, well, if the audience likes it. The thing is, we don't really need proper sequels to Argyle because this is connected to the Kingsman films. Those are more successful, which means as those continue, we could have some of these characters or elements return. I really love the cameo from Richard E. Grant. He's such a talented and funny actor. So yeah, that's my take on Argyle. I thought it was just fine, if a bit too long. Directed by Matthew Vaughn, starring a cat named Alfie and Bryce Dallas Howard, the movie is Argyle. Had to bring the cat. What did you expect me to do? Leave him to fend for himself? Come on. Be fine. Cat ladies always die alone. The cats figure it out. I am not a cat lady. I'm not. And what's your problem with my cat? 
Exactly. He's really cute. He's cuddly. He's oh, loyal. Please. He's kind. You suddenly drop dead. That cat's chewing your ears off within 48 hours max. Which, with you around, gets more likely by the minute. Oh, my Lord. I signed off and I almost forgot something. There is a major plot point about a character telling another character, hey, this was our song, because they're trying to remind them that they used to be in love. But the song that they use was released in the last six months. So a fellow critic... Tom O'Keefe, you might have heard him here on the Big 550, he thought that was a plot point. Like, oh, look, he's lying because the song is brand new. No, it's just that in the script they must have said, insert pop song here, and the filmmakers decided to use the Beatles now and then. So, yeah, that's one part of Argyle that really doesn't work. The show is Max on Movies. Find more by going to ktrs.com slash Movies. KTRS. Thanks for tuning in to Max on Movies. I'm your host, Max Foisey, here with my special guest, Catherine Yeske-Taylor, author of She's a Badass, Women in Rock Shaping Feminism. Catherine, how are you? I'm fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, absolutely. When this book came across my desk, I thought I have to interview you for a variety of reasons. Number one, I love all of these artists. I grew up listening to these artists, and uh, and they absolutely shaped me and helped me become the, the person that I am today. But I also love that you're not just highlighting their contributions to music. It's right there in the subtitle. It's talking about the impact that these women had on the state of feminism itself. Right. Um, this is a really interesting project for me to do because I, I've done probably thousands of interviews over the decades now, and stories uh, from women about the sexism they've encountered have come up in those interviews, but it was really interesting to do a book about this specifically and talk to women in depth about their lives and their experiences. It was interesting growing up in the late 80s and early 90s because this was right when Riot Girls became really popular. You had L7 leading Rock for Choice, and I was a, I was a teenage boy back then, and it was really opened my eyes to, uh, to just the plight of women in general. And it was really interesting to see this reflected on, on pop culture landscapes like MTV, and, and, and it was just incredible. And I, I went back to look at bands like like the Go-Go's, who were huge in the 80s as, as a pop act. But I don't think it was until the 90s that I realized, okay, there was no Svengali behind the scenes. The, these were women who wrote their own music, arranged their own music, produced their own music, and performed all of their own songs. Yeah, and um, I hope this book makes clear um, that you know there are certain women who really had to blaze a trail in that way. You know, Susie Quattro and Anne Wilson of Heart are the first two chapters in, in this book. 
And I ordered it from the oldest artist to the youngest for this reason, to try to show uh, the differences across the generations and what some of the older artists had to overcome um, and and make it so that the younger artists had an easier time. Um, And I, I... I hope it also shows that progress has been made, but we still need to uh, we still need to confront certain things that still need to have uh, improvement. You worked as a rock critic in Atlanta in the '90s, which wow, what a fantastic place to be based out of, and what wonderful artists that you must have had access to. Uh, when you sat down, it's okay. I've got 20 chapters, 20 artists. Did you have a a wish list, and did you pretty much get everybody you wanted, or were there a couple of artists that you you couldn't uh, grab for the book? Um, I got mostly everybody I wanted. I started off by asking women who I'd interviewed before, yeah. uh, because I thought they'd be much more likely to sign on, such as Suzanne Vega and Ann Wilson, um, Joan Osborne. Um, and then once they signed on, uh, other women who I hadn't interviewed before were willing to do it. And so I got, uh, I was really happy with the list that I got in the end. Um, I thought it was a really interesting cross-section of women from, um, mainstream rock through punk rock to folk rock. You know, um, I think it really represents the genre well, um, there were a couple of people I wish I could have gotten that I couldn't. Um, of course, I, I would have liked to have gotten um, Tracy Chapman. Yeah. Um, I did get a couple of women of color for this, but I would have liked to have gotten more. Um, you know, and that I also thought was telling that at a certain point, there weren't too many women I could ask. You know, so I thought that was interesting. Um, I, I mean, perhaps it's a book someone else can write about. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> about race and women in rock. But, um, yeah, so for the most part, I'm happy with uh, who I got and and the views they expressed. Absolutely. And, you know, you've talked about the progress that society has made, and, and it, it really can be felt in the music industry. I remember when Suzanne Vega was making a name for herself, it was always, oh, female artist, Suzanne Vega, female. And now it's just people say New York writer, you know, and it's it, it, it's wonderful. Yeah. That, yeah, and that's a great thing for me to see. I, I've got a, a son who's 12 now, and it's interesting in his school and, and with his friend group, uh, there's so much emphasis on diversity and equality, which is wonderful progress, but that wasn't necessarily the case Back in the '80s and '90s, and I found that uh, I, I found that through a lot of these artists. So it brings me to what Cherie Curry uh, from the Runaways has talked about that she doesn't really even understand what the word feminism means now because it was this you know lightning rod for for decades, and now though we've had so much uh, progression, what does that term mean now? I think it's an interesting question. Yeah, that was um, interesting to me. Is I thought when I started this project that everyone who agreed to do it uh, would identify as a feminist, and that isn't the case. Um, there were a few women who uh, are in this book who are adamantly opposed to being called a feminist. Um, like you said, Cherie doesn't want to be called that because she doesn't think that the the feminism movement as it stands now represents her views. Um, some people think it's been taken too far or they think it's too strident. Yeah. And so um, I thought that was really surprising at first um, that I would have women saying, don't apply that label to me. But then once they explained, it became clear that it's not that they're opposed to female equality. You know, they still want that. It's just the the method um, of achieving that to them um, should be different. So uh I think in the end it made it a much more well-rounded book because it represents uh, a wide range of viewpoints oh, yeah. um, as it applies to feminism. 
you talked about how you ordered these chapters from the earliest uh, trailblazers like your Ann Wilson all the way to the newest artist. And, and boy, you can really tell that we probably wouldn't have an artist like Amanda Palmer, who is so outspoken and so uh, so wonderful. But we wouldn't have she wouldn't have the groundswell of support without these decades of women before her. And I, I think I think she understands that. Right. And I think it's a really important point that I hope people take away from this is that we really need to work to maintain this progress, too. Um, It's not a matter of getting to a certain point and saying, all right, we've arrived. (laughs) We can relax now. Um, These things were hard won. Um, Some people really struggled hard to achieve what we have now. And uh, so now it's time for the younger generations to take up um, that struggle and and do what they can um, to maintain it and keep moving it forward. Boy, that's a wonderful point because we certainly don't want the interview to come across as, well, we've solved sexism. There's no more misogyny <laughs> in the world uh, because, sadly, uh, that is not the case. When you talk to someone like Tanya Donnelly, who has been in so many great bands, I love Belly, I love the Beaters, Throwing Muses, of course. Uh, when you talk to her, uh, do you try to focus on one of those artists or do you just talk to her about being a, a writer and a songwriter? Well, when I approached these women, I just kind of walked them through their whole life story. I started with their childhoods and worked up through their career because I thought it was so important to hear their backgrounds because that always explains so much about how someone ended up being the artist that they are. Um, And so in Tanya's case, you know, yes, she was involved in some really important alternative rock bands in the 90s. So it was interesting to hear how she got started with those um, and some of the obstacles she had to overcome in order to make them successful. Um, she tells a really interesting story in the book about how she landed a magazine cover, a, a big magazine cover, and um, during the photo shoot, the, the magazine publisher showed up and asked her to dinner. And um, she showed up with her manager and her publicist thinking, oh, you know, this is a business meeting, right. and quickly realized that he had meant it as a date. Oh, wow. And when she made it clear that she didn't want to go out with him, he killed the cover story. Oh, my Lord. And so, you know, and it was really telling that this was someone who at that time was really having a moment, um, was very successful, and still there was someone who um, could have such an unfair impact on her career no matter what she could do about it. Like, there's nothing she could do to contest it at that time. It reminds me of, of the great Juliana Hatfield, who had a cover for Spin Magazine, and they made a big deal about, she said something in an interview about being a virgin, and that was the that was what they put on the cover. And it was like, what, what, are you, like, what about her music? Yeah, so I think a lot of progress has been made because stories like this, I think, absolutely wouldn't be tolerated. I think... Uh, if someone tried to do that kind of thing now, the blowback would be so immediate and so fierce. So I think it's good um, that we have made progress even since the 90s. Uh, In the last 30 years, you can see how we've um, continued to evolve, and I think that's great. My guest is Catherine Yeske-Taylor. She's the author of She's a Badass, Women in Rock Shaping Feminism, an important book uh, to find out why we are where we are right now and the progress that's been made because of the hard work from these very talented female artists. I love the fact that your afterword is from the legendary Susan Rogers. As a big Prince fan reading about uh, a lot of those Revolution records and the recording process, I'm gobsmacked by the incredible 
incredible work that Susan did and the fact that Prince trusted her so much with that life-changing sound back then. So how, how did you track down Susan Rogers? Uh, a friend of mine, Karen Stapole, uh, works for Dolby Sound out in San Francisco at the Dolby Sound headquarters. And um, Susan Rogers had come there to speak uh, about her recording engineer career, and uh, Karen met her. And so when I told Karen I was doing this book, um, she said, oh, you need to talk to Susan Rogers, and I have her email address, and, <laughs> and, and gave it to me, and I wrote to Susan and explained what I was doing, and I was so happy when she wrote back and said that she would write the afterward. That's a huge honor. Absolutely. No, she is a genius and did some incredible work. Uh, Catherine Yeske-Taylor, thank you for writing this book. It's called She's a Badass, Women in Rock Shaping Feminism. Best of luck with it. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Big 550 KTRS. Thank you for tuning in to Max on Movies. I am your host, Max Foise. You can find the show at KTRS.com slash Max on Movies. That's where you can find interviews, movie reviews, all kinds of stuff like that. And we're bumping in with the song Frankenstein from Edgar Winter because we're here to talk about a new film called Lisa Frankenstein. That's right. Lisa Frankenstein is written by Diablo Cody, who's written a great number of very good movies, including the Oscar-winning film Juno, as well as Tully and Young Adult and Jennifer's Body. I'm a a fan of her work. I think she's a really great writer. And this is the feature film directorial debut from Zelda Williams, who is Robin Williams' daughter. The cast includes Carla Gugino. You know we here at Maxim Movies are big fans of Carla. Also Cole Sprouse, who you might remember when he was a child actor on The Sweet Life of Zack and Cody and Sweet Life on Deck. And it headlines Catherine Newton, who was recently in the MCU playing Ant-Man's daughter. She's also in a really funny film called Freaky, opposite Vince Vaughn. Now, the interesting thing about Lisa Frankenstein, besides the the clever title, uh, that kind of tells you everything you need to know about the movie, uh, but the budget is only $13 million, and I know this is a smaller picture, I know that it's appealing to a niche market, but with a small budget you know, of only $13 million, that's cheaper than a Blumhouse film, which is usually you know around $20 million. This one distributed by Focus Features here in the States and Universal internationally. But with a budget so low, I imagine it'll double its budget. I, I think this will top out around the box office around probably $15 million when it debuts, going on to 20 maybe ending the theatrical run, you know, 25 let's say. Not that box office is very uh, important to me, but it is when you have talented people who want to make some money. Sometimes when you watch a movie, you feel like it was made specifically for you. And that's the case with Lisa Frankenstein. When I watched this movie, I couldn't believe how much I was enjoying it. I had a big, dumb smile on my face the entire time. We've seen some movies recently set in the 1980s that really fail to capture the 80s. They try to mock it too much. I'm thinking of something called Totally Killer. 
But this movie, yes, it's set in 1989, uh, but it, lovingly so. And I think that's because the creators of the film, Diablo Cody and Zelda Williams, you know, they were there. And so they recall exactly the fashions, the music, the 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 vernacular, all of which is present here. It's interesting it's set in 1989 because this would be before the summer of Batman uh, taking over the box office and before grunge, of course, in 91. But the way that people interact here seemed very accurate to me as someone who grew up in the 80s. I've enjoyed Diablo Cody's collaborations with Charlize Theron in Young Adult and Tully, but I don't know if anyone has ever really done a better job delivering Diablo Cody's words than Elliot Page when he starred in Juno. And I feel that way about Lisa Frankenstein. Catherine Newton who was in Paranormal Activity 4 and Ant-Man and the Wasp's Quantumania and Freaky. She does some of her best work here, delivering these lines with just the perfect amount of nuance. I really enjoyed all of her double takes, the dry line readings. She really understood the assignment, and she's wonderful as Lisa Swallows. The title Lisa Frankenstein is really just for the movie. I never watched The Sweet Life of Zack and Cody and The Sweet Life on Deck because I was too old when those Disney Channel shows came out, and I didn't have the Disney Channel either. So I'm not really familiar with Cole Sprouse. Was he on Riverdale? I don't know. Uh, But this is really my first exposure to him, and it's an interesting part because except for a poem that he reads at the end, he doesn't talk at all in the entire movie. And I really think that he's going for a... Johnny Depp circa Edward Scissorhands or Benny and June performance. It's very physical, kind of what Depp was doing back then. He is a zombie, a reanimated corpse, but I think he's endearing and uh, good for him for taking on a part where he had to use his body, where he wasn't really able to speak. I like the supporting cast here as well, especially Carla Gugino. I'm so used to seeing her play a badass that when she's playing sort of this uh, the stuck-up evil stepmother, it was an interesting thing because I haven't seen her do that before, but she's great. She's just the best. I appreciated what first-time director Zelda Williams did with this movie. She's got a lot of personality on display. You can tell that the script resonated with her, and she brings it to life with a lot of care and love. There's some great references to Malay, and also there it, at one point there's a bookshelf, and Poppy Z. Bright's Lost Souls is on the bookshelf, and I love that book, and that's a wonderful little tiny nod. There's also great Universal monster movie posters in Lisa's room, like Creature from the Black Lagoon. A lot of great band shirts as well, including Violent Femmes and Peter Murphy. There's a Bauhaus poster. There's a great joke involving the band The Cure that made me laugh out loud. When I saw this in the theater, there weren't too many other people there, which isn't surprising for a low-budget movie that wasn't really marketed very much. But everyone else was sitting there stone-faced, and I'm cracking up. And I think that's because this is a movie for a niche group of people, a very specific group of people. 80s goths and guess what that's me so i love this movie in the same way that i loved the craft with feruza balk and robin tunney in the same way that i love sofia coppola's marie antoinette there's just a wonderful vibe about this movie and it's really heartfelt and extremely funny it's extremely funny a very dry kind of sense of humor a very 80s kind of sense of humor i don't know how else to put that but really really funny script To give you an idea about the the vibe of the movie, 
uh, Lisa Swallow's way that she reanimates corpses is not with a a big lab like Dr. Frankenstein back in the day, you know, harnessing the lightning. It's a tanning bed. <laughs> I don't think this is a movie that the masses are going to fall all over themselves for, but I do think that a very specific group of people will see this film and will love it. It's got shades of Labyrinth and Edward Scissorhands. It reminded me of My Boyfriend's Back, which is another uh, I'm Dating a Zombie movie, and also Cemetery Man, a wonderful foreign film, Cemetery Man. I love the fact that this got made. I love the fact that Zelda Williams and Diablo Cody collaborated on this, and I, I really, I, I keep coming back to Catherine Newton. She really sells this film and does a fantastic job. There are many quotables in the movie, and I, I can't say enough good things. I If you like quirkiness... And if you know who the Jesus and Mary chain are, then you're going to love Lisa Frankenstein. I'm really sorry you got electrocuted, Lisa. I'm fine. Let's wrap. How are you liking Brookview so far? It's fine. It's the same as my old school. Are you hot for anyone? Come on. Lisa. Lisa! Lisa, 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 Lisa. Michael Dreck. I don't know what that is. He's the editor-in-chief of The Grapple. The Lit Mag, the high school literary magazine. Does he lunch on or off campus? Off. BK or White Castle? Neither. Does he have more of a basketball bod or a football bod? He doesn't play sports. He's cerebral. He's in a wheelchair. No. Written by Diablo Cody, starring Catherine Newton, directed by Zelda Williams. The movie is Lisa Frankenstein. The show is Max on Movies. Find more at ktrs.com slash Max on Movies. <laughs> <laughs>